Section 3. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria by William Westgarth. Section 3. Indigenous Features Around Melbourne There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. Hamlet These features form an interesting retrospect of early Melbourne. They have nearly all disappeared since with the growth of town and population. Some who preceded me saw the kangaroos sporting over the site of Melbourne, a pleasure I never enjoyed, as the timid creatures fled almost at once with the first colonising inroad. I have spoken of the little bellbird, which, piping its pretty monotone, flitted in those earlier years among the acacias on the banks of the Yarra, close to Melbourne, but which has taken its departure to far distances many a year ago. The gorgeous black cockatoo was another of our early company, now all so long since departed. For a very few years after my arrival, they still hovered about Melbourne, and I recollect gazing in admiration at a cluster of six of them perched upon a large gum tree near the town, upon the Flemington Road. The platypus, also, was quite plentiful, especially in the Merry Creek. Visiting, about 1843, my friend Dr. Drummond, who had a house and garden at the nearest angle of the creek, about two miles from town, we adjourned to a waterhole at the foot of the garden, on the chance of seeing a platypus, and sure enough, after a few minutes, one rose before us in the middle of the pool. THE ABORIGINAL NATIVES IN AND ABOUT TOWN Oh, I see the monstrousness of man, when he looks out in an ungrateful shape. Timon of Athens The natives still strolled into Melbourne at the time of my arrival, and for a couple of years or so after, but they were prohibited about the time of the institution of the corporation, as their non-conformity in attire, to speak in a decent way, their temptations from offers of drink by thoughtless colonists, and their inveterate begging, begun soon to make them a public nuisance. But Aboriginal ways did not die at once, the virtues or integrity of native life, as Strelecki would phrase it, struggled and survived for some few further years the strong upsetting tide of colonial life. Returning one night, about 1843, from dining with Mr. William Locke, an old colonial merchant, at his pretty cottage and gardens on the Merry Creek, between four and five miles out by the Sydney Road, I diverged westwards from the Pewley Bush Track, which as yet constituted that main highway of the future Victoria. My object was to escape the swampy vicinities of Brunswick, a village about three miles out of town, 
consisting for a number of years of three small brick cottages, adventurously rather than profitably built by an early speculator. With firm footing and under a bright moon, I had a pleasant walk through what is now the beautiful Royal Park, when, judging that I must be nearing Melbourne, I perceived quite a number of lights ahead. There were as yet no public lights to scattered little Melbourne in those early days, although the new corporation, elected the year before, had got to work by this time. So, what could it all be? I was not long in suspense. It could only be a native encampment, and I was soon in its midst. The natives at a distance, especially in the far western direction, were still at times hostile, but all those who lived near town were already quite peaceful, so that I had no hesitation in now entering their encampment. I was most cordially received and shown over the different wigwams, each of which had its fire burning. I was taken specially to one occupied by a poor fellow who, under native war laws, had had his kidney fat wrenched out and eaten by his foes. He showed me the wound, which, however, had now healed up, but he himself had never recovered being sadly weak and death-like, as one who had but little more to do with this busy world. The last great native demonstration near Melbourne, and, indeed, so far as I can recollect, the last of its kind within the colony, took place about a mile northeast of the town, in the middle of 1844. This was a grand corroboree, arranged amongst themselves by surrounding tribes, including the still considerable tribe of the River Goulburn. This was, as it were, one last Aboriginal defiance, hurled in despair from the expiring native cause against the too victorious colonial invasion. We of the town had heard of the proposed exhibition, and many, including myself, went out to see it. There were present seven hundred Aborigines of all ages and both sexes. The performances were chiefly by the younger men, in bands of fifties, for the respective tribes, while the females, in lines by themselves, beat the time, and gave what they no doubt considered to be music. Early Civilizing Difficulties He loves his own barn better, and he loves our house. First part, Henry the Fourth. Up to that time, and for some time longer, the religious conversion of these natives was regarded as hopeless, so deeply bred in blood and bone was Aboriginal character. Consequently, all the earlier missions were abandoned in utter despair, with only one exception, that of the Moravians, which, in faith and duty continuing the work, was at length rewarded with success. Naturally some few, especially amongst the young, were less severely native than the rest, and these were more or less gained. But the change came with the next generation, born in the purple of surrounding colonial life. The blood and bone had been partially neutralised,
and this is still more the result of yet another generation that has followed, so that, in spite of the black skin, the missionary now deals with natures much more amendable to his teachings. A remarkable illustration of Aboriginal tenacity, which, however, I am quoting only from memory, occurred in South Australia. Two Aboriginal children, separated from babyhood from Aboriginal life, were trained and educated like colonists. For the early years little difference was noticed, but as they advanced into boyhood some restlessness became evident. When, on one occasion, a native tribe, presumably their own, happened to be near Adelaide, these children, who had either seen them or heard of them, made their escape at the earliest opportunity, and, having reached the native camp, at once threw off the habiliments of civilization, and never after showed any disposition to return to the conditions they had so summarily rejected. End of section 3